Since 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been committed to improving the lives of America's veterans, first responders, and their families. For over 20 years, the foundation has helped America keep its solemn promise to never forget. Tunnel to Towers provides mortgage-free homes to Gold Star families and the families of fallen first responders with young children and builds specially adapted smart homes for catastrophically injured veterans, as well as work to eradicate veteran homelessness. David Marshall served in the Army during World War II and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He's never forgotten the sacrifices of his comrades in arms, nor the efforts of first responders on 9-11 and in the days and months that followed. He is a loyal and proud Foundation donor. Tunnel to Towers is committed to supporting veterans, first responders, and their families, and so many of them need your help. Join the Foundation on its mission to do good and never forget. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. The crime situation in America continues to deteriorate, and it is directly attributable to progressive prosecutors, the BLM movement, the Democrats overall move toward being soft on crime to effectively decriminalize a whole range of crimes. And we are now seeing mounting evidence, as if we didn't have enough already, of just how catastrophic this is coast to coast and all around the country. For one thing, uh, the 2020 to 2021 crime surge involved a 30% national increase in homicides. But if you look Year over year, six months into this point, what you find is that we are still not only at record high levels of crime nationally, there are a number of cities. They're all in the hands of Democrats. They all have progressive prosecutors. They are a function of and a province of Democrat uh, governance and thinking. They actually have worse crime year over year to last year, which was a catastrophically bad year for them. Baltimore, this is from Fox News, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and New York City 
are all on pace to break their 2021 levels of violent crime halfway through this year. The nation's largest city leading the group, according to crime data compiled by Fox News. New York City has seen a 25% jump in violent crime at this point in 2022, six months in, compared to the same time in 2021. Uh, despite seeing a small decrease in the amount of homicides recorded in the city. So violence and lawlessness on the rise. And again, in cities where Democrats just a few years ago were touting their new no cash bail policies, uh, their lower prosecution rates and lower incarceration rates for criminal offenders. Well, now we see what the results of this are. And it's predictable and it's tragic. Now there has to be accountability. Here's just to give you a sense of some of the increases. Remember, these are year-over-year increases from 2021, which is one of the worst years ever for violent crime, at least in, let's say, 30 or 40 years in America. Uh, Atlanta is up 5.5% year-over-year. Baltimore, 6%. Philadelphia, 7%. Los Angeles, 8%. Washington, D.C., 12%. New York City, 25%. Now, this is a particularly big uh, problem. This is particularly a big challenge uh, for the city to explain because they have a new mayor, right? Here they are looking at the situation, look at the circumstance where they, uh, the, the people of New York elected a former police uh, captain to become the, the mayor of New York City so that he could crack down on violent crime. And sure enough, it is actually going in the opposite direction. Um, And this is also from Fox News. Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Milwaukee, and Atlanta have all seen homicide numbers outpace their mark in 2021. Milwaukee seeing the largest spike of the group according to crime data. So this is now specifically on homicide. You have Los Angeles, D.C., Baltimore, Milwaukee, Atlanta, more murders this year. Now, I understand you look at this data and you say, well, this is just atrocious. And everybody can understand that. Everybody can see what an outrage this is. So how do we change it? Well, one way to change it would be to stop instituting maniacally uh, reckless policies at the uh, level of citywide police department policy, uh, mayoral offices, prosecutor's offices. Here's an example. The Chicago Police Department has unveiled a new policy prohibiting its officers from chasing people on foot simply because they run away or because they have committed minor offenses. So now, if a, a officer in Chicago sees someone, let's say, steal a purse from somebody or run out of a store with a bag full of stolen goods, it is now official policy, as it seems, from the city of Chicago, that that officer should not give chase. And by the way, even if under the rules and regulations, the officer could justify giving chase, would he or she want to, knowing that that chase could result in a physical altercation of some kind, and that if the basis for the chase was ruled invalid under departmental regulations, there's always the possibility of some kind of discipline being meted out, really, of course, for political reasons against that officer. So what do you have? You have fewer people who are carrying a badge and a gun in Chicago, and this is true in so many cities, who are willing to do aggressive, effective policing against the criminal element that exists in every society, and that unfortunately has been emboldened so much in ours. 
But there are some. I mean, here's the Chicago police uh, superintendent who says that the foot pursuit policy makes officers and the community safer. Why? And I just want to add as an overview, foot pursuit policies have been part of law enforcement for over a decade now. Just because Chicago PD is now implementing a permanent one, the impacts on crime has been studied. and We can look back at foot pursuit policies. It's made officers safer and it's made the community safer in cities that's implementing this over a decade. So the expectation for us is, like Bob mentioned, what we'll learn and be informed by our documentation and review of how to continue to enhance officer safety as well as enhance safety of our residents. Fascinating that someone could say that and think that it doesn't sound utterly moronic. How does it make the city safer? It, it may reduce officer involved uh, officer involved altercations, of course, because they're not enforcing the law. But what does that do to the law in the city? What does it do to criminality? What happens with those who are now emboldened to break the law more than ever because they know they won't be chased? What we've seen is actually these cities deteriorating from a safety perspective. What we've seen is a massive increase in lawlessness. He's going to say there's a foot patrol policy that is provably better. Just absurd. It's just a stupid thing to say. And yet he says it. And people are going to go along with it. And you have to wonder. Oh, of course, there was a high-profile chase uh, that did involve two individuals uh, uh, who had guns, and there were uh, there were shots fired by police in in response to this huge political uproar of this. That's what the foot chase policy is be, uh, all about, and that's why it's becoming permanent right now. And then you also have it's not just at the at the command level of major police departments in Democrat cities. You also have the progressive prosecutors like George Gascon. As we know, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco is out because people got sick of stepping over needles with their children in public parks and their houses being broken into constantly, their cars being broken into constantly, the assaults, the constant threats. It was enough, right? Well, Los Angeles has many of the same problems. And recently, Gascon, the DA, came under a lot of well-deserved heat because he let a gang member who, under law, should have been sentenced under a three-strikes law let a gang member out who then killed two cops, and Gascon, who is the worst, a disgrace to any prosecutorial outfit anywhere in the country, is defending it, saying, yeah, we did the right thing with that gang member who then killed two cops. Watch this. The outcome in this particular case, given what we knew then, no history of violence, very little contact with the criminal justice system for nearly 10 years, was appropriate. When people are arrested for serious crimes, we work hard to ensure that there are serious consequences, including lengthy periods of incarceration. But we have an imperfect system. And that's not only here in LA, that's everywhere. He's a disgrace. He should resign. And the fact that he won't just shows what an unethical piece of garbage he is as a prosecutor. We'll have more on this with retired FBI agent James Gagliano in just a moment. Let's talk about protecting your home for a minute. You know that I'm skeptical by nature. So when I first heard about home title theft and the idea that thieves can literally steal your home, I was like, really? 
Can some cyber criminal really forge my name off the title of my home and take over as the new owner? Turns out, yeah, he can. It's not as rare as you'd think. According to the FBI, this crime is growing faster than credit card fraud, and you're not covered by homeowner insurance or common identity theft programs. Home Title Lock earned my trust. Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title. The instant they detect anyone tampering with their home's title, they mobilize to help shut it down. So here's what I urge you to do. Number one, go to HomeTitleLock.com and read the testimonials from FBI agents and government officials. Number two, register your home address to see if you're already a victim and don't even know it. When you protect your home, tell them Buck Sexton sent you to get my listener discount. HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. Support for my podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with its exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code BUCK at manscaped.com. The Performance Package 4.0 includes a ton of men's grooming products like the Lawn Mower 4.0 Trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a bunch of other great men's hygiene products you never knew you needed, plus a travel bag to hold it all. The Lawn Mower Trimmer is the best. It's got a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, and it's waterproof so no more messes on the bathroom floor. You'll also get the waterproof Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer with proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in all those delicate areas. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BUCK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code BUCK to unlock your confidence and always use the right tools with Manscaped. Violent crime is a major national news story because of exactly the statistics we've been talking to you about on this show. Unprecedented increases in shootings, in murders, and this is across the country in major cities. And it continued beyond the horrific year of a 30% nationwide increase in 2020 to 2021. What can we do to combat this situation? And also want to talk about the latest updates from Uvalde. We're joined now by James Gagliano. He is a retired FBI agent and was a member of an FBI hostage rescue team during his time serving. James, thanks for being with us. Good to join you, Buck, as always. So let's just start with the the crime data. Um, looking at the numbers, you have even compared to last year was a terrible year nationwide. Cities, towns, rural there were spikes in crime really all over the country uh, starting in 2020 and going through 2021. But here we are in 2022 and the data in Atlanta, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, D.C., New York, all showing year over year increases. So it's not like we had a really bad year. We've got it under control. It's actually continuing to get worse in these cities. First off, is that is that surprising to you just from a criminal justice statistical perspective? And what do you think is pushing these numbers even higher than we've seen them? Yeah, it, it is no surprise to me, Buck. A- absolutely not. There, there's two things that drive this. One is a permissive environment because criminals, evildoers, they take the path of least resistance and they will take what you give them. And when you have this influx of, of progressive prosecutors, 
Um, and we know that in San Francisco, Chase Bowden was just uh, was just recalled. We know that George Gascon in uh, in Los Angeles is under fire right now for the fact that he let out a felon who was arrested with a gun and drugs and gave him probation. And that felon went on to kill two police officers recently. You've got Alvin Bragg in Manhattan. You've got Kim Fox in Chicago. You've got Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. These folks, we live in a, in a society where our criminal justice system is imperfect, but it is the best in the world. But it depends, Buck, on an adversarial, adversarial system where the defense has an opportunity to make their case. But the prosecution represents me and you and the rest of the public. And when the prosecution helps makes the defense's case, that's why we're seeing all these numbers driven up right now. There is no fear right now. There's no repercussions. That's why smashing grabs are going on. Grand theft auto is up. Robberies are up. It's because people understand there's a permissive environment and they're going to do whatever it takes to get away with things because they know there are no consequences, Buck. From a criminal justice perspective, how, how do you uh, assess new policies that have been put in place in cities like Chicago where they now have a no foot chase rule and that extent for for police, meaning that if police believe that somebody uh, is in the in the course of committing a crime or has committed a crime and runs from them, unless they think it's a serious violent felony that has occurred or the person poses an immediate threat to the public, the cops aren't even supposed to run after individuals. So you see this, you say, okay, so let's say uh, a group of organized retail theft, an organized retail theft gang goes into one of those fancy handbag stores and steals. $100,000 of stuff in three or four minutes, as they've done in downtown Chicago, for example. Cops arrive on the scene. Those individuals run with those handbags. The cops aren't allowed to chase them. How, how is there any law and order when that's the, the policy of the city of Chicago? Yeah, it, it, again, it speaks, to, it, it speaks to the fact that the criminal element understands and senses weakness. And in this instance, that's what it is. Look, Alvin Bragg in, in Manhattan, the DA there, put out a, uh, a policy memorandum right after he was elected and stated that he was not going to be seeking prosecutions for resisting arrest. So what does that tell the potential subject? Hey, I've got a chance to get away. And if I don't get away and I club a police officer on the head with a cudgel or punch him in the face, I'm not going to be prosecuted for it. Same thing in Chicago. Cops have a tough job. We all know that. You and I have discussed this many times before. But now they have to make not just the snap judgments that come with the information vacuum they're dealing with when they respond to a crime in progress, but they've got to determine, was this an aggravated assault or simple assault? If it's an aggregated, aggravated assault, then I can take off and, and try to catch this guy. If not, I might be subjecting myself to some type of legal ramifications at the end of this. It's not worth it. And when you sense that, the police departments are having a tough time now with recruiting. They're having a tough time with retention. That people are leaving in droves and police departments are having trouble recruiting young people, men and women, to come and be part of this. What does that say? It means we're in a bad spot right now and we've gotta change this. Fuck, the pendulum always swings back and course correct. We're going in a bad direction right now, just like we were in the 70s and the 80s, and then broken windows became a thing. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to use what worked. Things like broken windows policing, and I sense 
a lot of cities are going to be moving back to that line of thought pretty soon. James, I wanted to uh, switch to another really important and, and very difficult topic of the latest on the Uvalde school massacre police response. There is video now that shows individuals uh, from law enforcement essentially in a stacked position in the hallway. And here's uh, ready to go in. They waited for over an hour. Here's the Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McGraw saying the suspect could have been stopped within three minutes. Why? There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. And that is a stunning indictment to say that he placed the lives of officers over the lives of children. Based on the facts, though, James, is that just an honest assessment of what happened here, given that there's video, there's no question, and the timeline is not in dispute either, that you had multiple officers in the hallway with long guns and tactical shields and bullet-resistant Kevlar vests on who waited over an hour while there was still active shooting going on in that classroom. How did this happen? What do you think about this police response? Well, I agree with him right there. Uh, it was an abject failure. And, and Buck, I think you know me well enough to know now, I'm very careful on waiting to weigh in until all the facts are at hand. And I know that there is an ongoing investigation. Pieces are leaking out. The things that are leaking out are, are beyond stressing. They are, it's, it's unconscionable. Now, I think the biggest breakdown in the incident command system here was the fact that you had a police chief who had a six member police department for the school district and this police chief, Arredondo, who was the on-scene commander and making the calls throughout. Now, from the time the shooter entered the school until the shooter was neutralized, interdicted by a, a Customs and Border Patrol TAC team, I believe was a total of 77 minutes. The fact that post-Columbine, post-Columbine, which happened in April of 1999, we are 23 years past that, where we learned painful lessons when law enforcement officers waited in the parking lot for homogenous tactical team to show up and gave the shooters 47 minutes from entry to commit heinous crimes, killing people, teachers, killing uh, students. In this instance, I think it was a lesson learned for all of us here, but especially a painful one in law enforcement. Someone from one of the other agencies that respond, whether it was a federal agency like Customs and Border Protection or the Department of Public Safety for Texas, which is a much larger agency, a sergeant or lieutenant there is the equivalent of a police chief anywhere else, should have taken charge of the scene. And yes, Buck, to your point, they should have gone to the sound of the guns. When young children who are not outfitted in body armor and are covering up with notebooks and sheafs of paper are waiting on the perfect homogenous tactical team to make entry, Buck, we're doing it wrong. James, appreciate the expertise. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Buck. Coming up, the Senate has advanced a bipartisan gun control measure. What will this really do, if anything? 
We'll talk to Cam Edwards of BearingArms.com next. Uh, first, I want to talk to you about protecting your online data. A lot of companies promise your privacy is guaranteed, but we know that's not true. That's why you need a new privacy and cybersecurity application tool called Secure. It's spelled S-E-K-U-R. Secure is using proprietary encryption and offering secure instant messaging and email. With Secure, all of your communications based on servers and data centers hosted in Switzerland without using any of the big tech platforms. Privacy is a big issue now. Without real security, people can read your emails, your messages, even your bank information. Secure will never mind your data, never ask for your phone number. You can send emails to your doctor, banker, lawyer, or anyone else with total confidence you're not being spied on. Secure is your solution to stop the constant theft of your digital identity. Costs only $5 for the messenger, only $10 for the messenger and email combination package. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com. And use promo code BUCK for 25% off. We'll be right back with more Hold the Line. So the Senate has voted to advance a gun control legislation uh, that is going to do the following expanded background checks for buyers under 21, provides grants for states that implement their own red flag laws, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of things going on here. 14 Republicans, mental health services, things like that. 14 Republicans went along with it, which a lot of people on the right are saying, what the heck is going on here? Well, when we have a question like that, and it has to do with the Second Amendment. Got to ask our buddy Cam Edwards. Cam, what's going on? Hey, Buck. How are you, man? So first off, any surprises on the Republicans who went along with this? Yeah, Todd Young of Indiana was a, a bit of a surprise, although I did see a quote from him, I think, on Monday or Tuesday of this week that indicated like he was, you know, looking forward to seeing what they came up with. So um, he was a bit of a surprise. Uh, Murkowski was not as much of a surprise to me. And then, you know, listen, we've had 10 Republicans who sat all along, like as, the, as long as the final legislation followed that basic framework that they were in support. So. Um, I, I wasn't too surprised. I actually predicted before a vote was held yesterday that this would get 65 uh, uh, votes, and it ended up getting 64. So I was pretty close. I was one off. So now we are at this point where people, of course, have been saying until until today, well, you don't even know what's in it because the text is in public. So you're just going on, you know, hearsay or whatever, right? This is how the people that want this stuff to pass play games in the media. Now they've actually got a text. Now they've actually voted on it. They dropped it, as I understand it, last night, 80 pages. So very little time, even for the Senate staffers, never mind the senators themselves, to go over this and see what's in it. Based on what we know, Cam, what's in it, and even more importantly, how do you see this actually being implemented, or what happens now if this gets signed, which we believe it will, by Biden into law? Well, I, I think the biggest impact that uh, folks are going to see right away is going to be the uh, expanded background checks for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. So if you're an adult under the age of 21 and you go to buy a firearm, you're going to see an immediate impact, right? Because we're basically talking about a three-day waiting period, potentially as many as 10 business days, uh, while the FBI goes into your juvenile records to see if there was any sort of you know juvenile crime that would uh, make you prohibited from owning a firearm. Um, as far as adults go, there's also a change in, in the definition of 
who is engaged in the business of selling firearms, right? Because once you're engaged in the business, you have to have a federal firearms license. Uh, and it's still not a hard and fast rule. Like they didn't say if you sell more than 50 guns a year, you need to get an FFL. Basically, the, the new definition is if you are selling guns primarily for profit, uh, then you should be getting an FFL. So, uh, you know, I, I could see that uh, some gun owners who have quite an extensive collection who may, you know, sell a arm from their uh, private collection on a semi-regular basis, uh, I can see that the ATF would now consider them to be a firearms dealer and they would need to get an FFL. As far as the red flag stuff goes, I got to tell you, I don't know that we're going to see a whole lot of changes because, you know, this is left up to the states as to whether or not they want to implement these red flag laws. States are also eligible now for the same pool of grant money for programs that don't involve confiscating firearms uh, without due process protection. So things like veterans courts and other crisis intervention programs, if states want to adopt those strategies, they're still eligible for that pool of federal grant funds. So I don't think we're going to see an explosion of red states adopting red flag laws. Most of the blue states already have them in place. Uh, and I think that that's actually, well, it's a troubling part of the bill. I don't know how much real world impact it's going to have, at least right away. Cam, here's uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. I mean, on this point about what it does, the answer is obviously not a lot that's good. If anything, that's good or useful might annoy some people or create some hassles, delays for the law abiding. Uh, it seems very unlikely this is going to stop even one shooting. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose they're always going to operate under the theoretical premise that, well, it could create a circumstance, right? We'll see. Um, but also, this isn't the end of it either. I mean, it's not like Democrats now are going to turn around and say, we got bipartisan gun reform. We're good. Now this is just, okay, step one in a much longer journey toward disarming the American people. I mean, here's Chuck Schumer saying, this is just the beginning, folks. Watch. While it's not everything we want, this legislation is urgently needed. I'm pleased that for the first time in nearly 30 years, Congress is back on the path to take meaningful action to address gun violence. What do you think? Yeah, um, listen, here, here's the thing, and you're right, and this is where we get into the politics, right, as opposed to the policy uh, of this legislation. And the politics, I think, are, are pretty simple for both sides here. Um, Democrats are looking for something that they can call a win, that they can present to their base and say, look, we're not completely inept. Look, we can actually get stuff done. Please come out and vote for us come November. Uh, and this is it. Republicans, meanwhile, I've had a lot of folks ask me, okay, well, what do Republicans get out of this? Um, I, I think you have to look at the polls that we've seen, particularly since Uvalde, showing that crime and, quote, gun violence has become one of the top concerns of voters. It's not as high as inflation. It's not as high as the economy, but it is on the mind of voters. Uh, and look, this is a red wave environment for Republicans. They are looking to try to increase their margins, increase their majorities. And if they feel like they can win more votes by approving this deal, then they're going to lose from single issue Second Amendment voters. Listen, you're going to see the murder turtle Mitch McConnell, you know, roll the dice and take that bet. I think that is the political calculation for Republicans that most single issue two A voters are not going to stay home on Election Day because they're mad at Republicans for voting for this deal. They still want to vote Democrats out. They are tired of five dollar a gallon gas. Uh, and frankly, and I hate to say this. 
I'm not sure how many single issue voters there are right now, unless that single issue is the economy or inflation. You know, that's impacting all of us. And I think that it's given Republicans a little bit of wiggle room to play for the middle as opposed to try to appease the base. Yeah, it seems like I think that's very astute analysis. Uh, Mitch McConnell certainly has no fear about what this will do to his reelection prospects. He, he put out a statement. Uh, I support the bill text that Senator Cornyn and our colleagues have produced. For years, the far left falsely claimed that Congress could only address the terrible issue of mass murders by trampling on law-abiding Americans' constitutional rights. This bill proves that false. Our colleagues have put together a common-sense package of popular steps that will help make these horrifying incidents less likely while upholding Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. I honestly just don't believe they're going to make them less likely. I think that's a huge leap. But, but even apart from that, uh, the, the notion that this in some way will result in good faith from the Democrats now, okay, re Republicans don't just want to watch lots of people die in gun violence all over the country and do nothing. We're not going to use that talking point anymore. No, they're going to use that talking point tomorrow, Cam. You and I both know it. Absolutely. But now Republicans can say, no, they're wrong. Look, we took action. Right. So, no, they're not going to convince Democrats, but they may convince independents. Right. They, they may be able to convince uh, folks who were on the fence or maybe not even thinking about voting this year, although I don't know how many Americans there are like that out there these days. Um, again, I think this was a sort of a, a political prevent defense move. Uh, on the part of Republicans, yeah. right? They're 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 just trying to appear not crazy, uh, or at least less crazy than Democrats, um, and to give that 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 sort of you know moderate squishy middle another reason to vote for them. And now when Democrats say Republicans don't care about your kids, Republicans can say yeah we do because look at what we did. We just spent seven billion dollars for school safety. We just you know improved mental health access uh, for adolescents who are at risk. So you know they they check the box here as far as how effective these policies are going to be. Look, expanded background checks for 18, 19, and 20 year olds might pick up some teenagers who were convicted of some pretty heinous crimes who, you know, are now free and clear to buy a gun as an 18 year old. Maybe that stops somebody. I'd like point. to think, you know, I'd like to think that the additional mental health spending, if it doesn't stop a school shooter, maybe it stops somebody from killing themselves, right? Maybe it, it, it stops somebody from bullying another kid. I don't know. Is that worth $7 billion? I don't know. You know, again, I would have preferred to have seen each and every one of these things broken out, voted on on a standalone basis. But Democrats never would have gone along with that because then their gun control uh, part of the package would have failed, right? So this is the political calculation that was made for Democrats and for Republicans. Am I satisfied with the bill? No. Is that unusual for me to be dissatisfied with Congress? No. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately, I think even though, you know, Chuck Schumer's talking about how this is like the biggest thing to happen in gun control in 30 years, I think this is still going to be status quo for a lot of folks who follow politics closely. You know, we're watching Washington, D.C. treat what is, I think, a very real problem uh, through a political lens. And I think that that's stopping us from actually reaching some of the, the real solutions that, that we should be looking for. Damn, next time you have to give me the secrets of how to grow a beard that long so I can kind of up my game here a little bit. But we appreciate you joining. Patience. Patience. That's all it takes. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, bud. Thank you, my friend. All right, coming up, Biden talks about a gas tax. Is that really going to do anything? We'll discuss that with Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute. Stick around.
President, if you were to decide to go for a federal gas tax holiday, do you believe Congress would support that? And how would you feel about the fact that those funds are used for something that is a big priority for you, repair of roads and infrastructure and all of that? Is that worth the We have the a giant time? infrastructure. Look, it will have some impact, but it's not going to have an impact on major road construction and major repairs. Sounds like you may have made a decision. Well, let me put it this way. I'm in the process. I'll have a decision before the week is out. President Biden saying we got to have a little gas tax holiday because the price of gas is so high right now. And the biggest problem for Democrats is that they're getting blamed for it because, you know, they're in power and they've made a whole bunch of bad decisions. Well, let's talk about what this would actually mean. Joining me now is the president of the Mises Institute, Jeff Dice. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Buck. So let's just start with this, the, the, the notion of a gas tax holiday. What would this mm -hmm. mean? How does it strike? Well, it wouldn't mean a lot for average people. We're just talking about the federal end of things. If you happen to live in California or Pennsylvania, for example, you're getting charged more than 50 cents per gallon at the state level. So this is 18.4 cents at the federal level. It'd be a couple dollars per fill up. Hey, I'll take it. Uh, you know, in terms of revenue, it's it's almost meaningless. A, a few billion dollars a month. The federal government sneezes a few billion dollars a day. I mean, but what's so interesting about this buck is is Biden doesn't really believe in this. I, I mean, he campaigned on getting rid of fossil fuels. So when he talks about this sort of thing, it's just a, it's, it's an obvious political ploy. I guess we should appreciate that he's actually sentient enough at the moment to make a political calculation and shows more spark than he's shown of late. And one of the issues that the Democrats have right now to, to tackle, there are a lot of issues, right, Jeff? But one thing they got to make sense of is that it wasn't long ago that Barack Obama himself was making the case that a gas tax uh, change of any kind really was a gimmick. Mm -hmm. This was the word that he used uh, back in 2008. What? But for us to suggest that 30 cents a day for three months, is real relief, that that's a real energy policy, means that we are not tackling the problem that has to be tackled. We are offering gimmicks. Mm -hmm. Offering gimmicks. I, I actually, it, it sounds like Obama was right, actually. <laughs> that's a gimmick. Am I missing something? Yeah, this is gimmicky. It's it's not a lot of money. But here's the thing. You got to understand that their entire worldview is that that this is a cost to government. Everything implicitly belongs to the government when they allow you to pay a little less than somehow they're giving you something. So that's, I think, first and foremost. And I mean, I would hate to see Americans go through a really bad summer with exceedingly high gas prices and God forbid, let's say rolling blackouts in the electrical grid when the whole country seems so hot. But, you know, maybe this is what it takes. Maybe the silver lining would be that we have to expose Biden and these people for this absolutely insane idea that we're going to stop burning oil and coal and natural gas anytime soon and still have, you know, reasonably priced gasoline at the pump and, and air conditioning and all the things we rely on every day. It's, it's just unsustainable. Green energy is not going to cut it here. And so in that sense, you know, it's gimmicky, but it, maybe it helps us normal people start to see the light. I mean, let's be pro-energy, for God's sake. Well, it's also fascinating that you're hearing more openly than ever before the Biden administration essentially saying, hey, you know, look, your gas price is high, but it's really a lot of it uh, Putin's fault 
And so this comes down to, you want to stop the war in Ukraine and stand up for democracy and stand up against Putin or pay high gas or, you know, or pay low gas prices. That's the choice that we have. Here's what Biden said. For all those Republicans in Congress criticizing me today for high gas prices in America, are you now saying we were wrong to support Ukraine? Are you saying we were wrong to stand up to Putin? Are you saying that we would rather have lower gas prices in America and Putin's iron fist in Europe? What do you make of that? Putin's iron fist in Europe. Wow. Uh, the next Hitler, I suppose. Look, the, the gas prices were rising before Putin invaded Ukraine, for one. Second, a, an exceedingly small portion of U.S. imported oil comes from Russia. So it's it's not a key player. This is a refining issue in the United States. It doesn't matter how much oil we drill here or how much we import. The bottleneck is refining because we haven't built any refineries since the 70s, and the big oil companies won't invest in them because it's a big capital investment. It takes decades to repay, and you know everyone's telling us we're going to be electric. So you got to understand um, they're a little reluctant to do so. The idea that this is on Putin is just absurd. Now, if you live in Germany where they shut down all their nuclear plants and they import a hell of a lot of oil from Russia as a result, I guess you could blame Putin, but more likely you should be blaming Angela Merkel. But either way, uh, it's just an absurd statement by Biden. And then you have the inflation situation, which obviously energy prices play into this and it's all interconnected at some level, but you have a situation now of inflation that looks like it is not only at a, at a multi-decade high, but could stay there for quite some time. Mm -hmm. The Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, was saying that it is demand, not Fed money printing, that has pushed us to this point. Watch this. I just would say it's clearly uh, both factors are, are principally at work here. You, you couldn't get this kind of high inflation without strong demand, and you certainly couldn't get it without the kind of supply issues that we've had both in the labor market reflected in high wages and then in, in the goods market reflected in what's happened with, with uh, um, durable goods. And, and cars in particular, you look there, there's a, it's been this driven by a semiconductor shortage. So what, what, nothing, nothing mm. about trillions of dollars for people to stay at home, nothing about two trillion from Biden for the American rescue plan. Didn't rescue the country, that's for damn sure. Well, and the Fed added uh, over $9 trillion in brand new money to the balance sheet of commercial banks over this COVID crisis as well. So they're basically recapitalizing banks on our backs in terms of inflating the dollar. So he, you know, most people don't view gas and groceries as some kind of luxury item, and there's a lot more demand. I mean, demand for calories and gasoline is, is, is pretty steady. People have to buy those things. So I think Powell continues to sound pretty out of touch and pretty aloof. And maybe worst of all, he continues to sound pretty political, like he's carrying water for Biden. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. All right, coming up, an Australian newspaper says that not talking to relatives could lower your risk of COVID-19 transmission. Hmm, you don't say. We'll get into that in quick hit. It's time for some of those important stories we haven't gotten to yet, and we didn't want to let you go to sleep tonight without at least knowing what's going on with all of them. So quick hits, line them up, knock them down. Here we have it. Harold Sun, the newspaper, they tweeted this out. A study from Proceedings of the National Academy of Science 
Giving your coworkers and family members the silent treatment and texting, not talking, could be the key to getting the COVID pandemic under control. Speaking just four words an hour increases the spread of COVID-19 10 times more than breathing normally. So basically, if we're gonna stop COVID, which we are never going to do, which is impossible, which is what we've seen now for two plus years, going on three years, give me a break. There's no stopping COVID, just like there's no stopping the common cold. This should have been known all along. But they're telling you, well, maybe if you just shut up and don't speak, peasants, we'll have a better chance of slowing down the virus, which is absurd and insane. And you think to yourself, they can't really believe that this is the, oh no, they do. They do, they think that this is good advice. You know, they think that this is necessary for people to hear at this point. And then speaking of the insane, the CEO of Pfizer, uh, CEO named Albert Burla, he's out there telling everybody, what, what I've been saying now for over a year is, so it's gonna be a new vaccine every year, and if you believe that the COVID vaccine should be mandatory, it's mandatory shot for everyone, babies to old people, everybody in between every year. And if you won't get it, you should get fired. That's what the libs believe, which is appalling because they were wrong about all this. It doesn't stop the spread. You need three shots. And even with the three shots, you can still get sick. And, you know, the whole thing. And even if you get the three shots, you can still die. In fact, you're less likely to than people who don't get any shots. But if you're in the high risk category, <sighs> we all know this, right? But yet here's the CEO of Pfizer telling everybody, you might have to get shots every year, just like we said. Do you think we're going to get updated mRNA vaccines every season that'll be directed to each new variation of the coronavirus? And will we have to take those shots every year? I'm almost certain about it. And I say almost certain because, of course, regulators have the final say in all of that. But that's the beauty of mRNA the beauty of mRNA. Yes, you see, it's almost like a massive multi-billion dollar a year annuity for companies like Pfizer. Just have the little tweak to the mRNA for the new variant and then make everyone get the shot. Does it help them make a difference? This is just like the flu shot, folks, which kind of works for some people sometimes. We didn't make everybody get that because we know a lot of times it doesn't do a damn thing. A lot of people don't need it. We already have the template for how to go forward as a society. Forget about all this nonsense. We already know. Treat, the, treat COVID like we've treated the flu for the last 50 years, the last 100 years. But instead, this is where we are. More authoritarian lunacy, more madness from these people. At least we can have some amusement by watching the White House continue to just descend into the abyss of electoral destruction, which is going to be a lot of fun in this midterm. Uh, the new White House press, relatively new White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, said something. Look, I know it's a, a little verbal slip up, but kind of funny anyway. Watch. I mean, the president has been very clear in making sure that he does everything that he can uh, to uh, to elevate to alleviate uh, the, you know, the the pain that American families are feeling when it comes to gas prices. Since 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been committed to improving the lives of America's veterans, first responders, and their families. For over 20 years, the foundation has helped America keep its solemn promise to never forget. Tunnel to Towers provides mortgage-free homes to Gold Star families and the families of fallen first responders with young children and builds specially adapted smart homes for catastrophically injured veterans 
as well as work to eradicate veteran homelessness. David Marshall served in the Army during World War II and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He's never forgotten the sacrifices of his comrades in arms, nor the efforts of first responders on 9-11 and in the days and months that followed. He is a loyal and proud Foundation donor. Tunnel to Towers is committed to supporting veterans, first responders, and their families, and so many of them need your help. Join the Foundation on its mission to do good and never forget. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 